Well, here we are, the last day of 2006. And if you're like me, you love all the year-end stuff. I mean, you check out all the magazines that recap the top news stories of the year. You watch the TV specials to look back and remind you of all the events that happened over the past 12 months and all the stories of the year. You love that kind of thing. And you love lists in particular. I mean, this time of year, I love to... to watch the top 10 sports moments of the year, or the top 10 moments to remember, the top 10 celebrity weddings, whatever. And since this is the last day of the year, I thought I'd give you a list of the top things, the top 10 things that I've learned this year. Except that you probably don't care about most of the things that I've learned this year. I mean, you, you don't really care that I learned that Ron McLean, who's the host of Hockey Night in Canada, was actually born in Germany. You don't really care about that, do you? And you probably don't care that today is the 50th anniversary of Bob Barker being on national television. That's probably not all that relevant for you. It might be interesting, but you don't really care. Um, plus, sometimes I can be a little slow and probably couldn't come up with a list of 10 things that I learned this year anyway. And so I'm only going to tell you this morning about the top one thing that I learned, okay? The top one thing that I learned in 2006. Now, just a few moments ago, Jim read a passage for us from Deuteronomy chapter 4 that tells us not to forget the lessons that God teaches us. And it goes on and tells us to actually pass those lessons on to others. And I think God taught me something important this year. And so I'm going to pass it on to you this morning. The greatest thing that I learned in 2006. It's actually something that I learned at the leadership summit that I attended back in August, and I've been thinking about it ever since. And I think it's so important that I've spent the past several months trying to sort it out for my own life. Now, admittedly, this lesson that I'm going to tell you about addresses a part of me that needs a lot of work. And maybe that's why I think it's the greatest lesson that I've learned. It's so practical for me personally. Now, some of you already have a pretty good handle on this, what we're going to talk about. For others, this could revolutionize the way that you spend your time and your energies and your talents. It could be the very thing that you need to hear this morning. But before I actually get to that, and before I tell you what my greatest lesson of 2006 has been, I need to set it up for you first. You see, each one of us has several different aspects to our lives. Sometimes they function independently, sometimes they overlap. But there are several distinct aspects to our lives, and two of them rise head and shoulders above the rest. So let me first of all give you the, the two major aspects of life. The first one is this, it's work. Work is a major aspect of life. Now for most people, work takes up about one-third of their waking hours. Some people love their work, some people hate their work. Some people are well-paid, some volunteer or receive minimal pay. Uh, some people work just to make money. Others work to progress in their career. In fact, for a lot of people, their work is their identity. If you ask someone who they are, they might tell you, I'm a banker, or I'm an accountant, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a pastor. Work is a major part of our lives, whether we work inside of the home or outside of the home. Work takes up about one-third of your waking hours, and I would say that a good percentage of the other two-thirds is taken up by the other major aspect of life, and it's this, pursuing or maintaining a family. Now, most of us have a lot of family responsibilities. Depending on where you're at in life, there's dating, there's our relationship with our spouse or with our boyfriend or girlfriend, there are the 
uh, repairs that need to be done around the house. There's the attention that we give to our parents and to our brothers or sisters or to our extended family. There's a time we need to give to our kids. This past week, Shara and I were in Fredericton visiting with my family for Christmas, and we stayed with my brother and his family. Now, he has two young boys who play hockey on the same team. Joshua is just about to turn seven, Matthew's five. And on Wednesday afternoon, Shara and I, uh, my brother and his wife, Lynn, my mother and some other friends who were visiting, we all headed to York Arena in Fredericton to watch the boys play. I actually used to play in that arena myself when I was a boy. And I remembered how cold it was. Uh, Poor Shara had no idea. It was the coldest arena I've ever been in. But there we were, up in the stands, freezing our butts off, watching this exciting hockey game. Watching the Timbits play hockey. Uh, Actually, it wasn't all that exciting. It it was pretty exciting because I knew knew two of the boys that were playing. Um, But it certainly wasn't an NHL caliber hockey game. Actually, Joshua has gotten pretty good. He scored a goal and he hit the post three or four times during that game. Matthew's a little younger and most of the time he doesn't really have a clue where the puck is, but that's okay because he doesn't care in it anyway. In fact, there was one time when I guess he just got tired and so he dropped to his knees and then plopped right down on uh, face first onto the ice. Uh, and he stayed there for a little while until the coach skated over and came to get him up and found out he was just taking a rest. I thought it was pretty funny, uh, but he's basically at the same place that Joshua was at last year, and he's improving. He's getting pretty good, actually. Now, why did we go to see them play? Was it because it was going to be such a high skill level game? No. In fact, at the exact same time that they were playing, Canada was playing the U.S. in the World Junior Hockey Championships over in Sweden. Now, if I wanted to see an exciting game, I would have stayed at the house to watch TSN. I would have watched that game on TV. But I thought it was more important for me to go and see the boys play. I mean, I remember how thrilled Josh was last year when we went to watch him play. And so we just had to do it again this year, especially since both of them were playing. Now, I should also mention that that besides these two major aspects of life, work and family, you also have some other aspects. You have your hobbies and your friends, your community involvement, your sports participation. There's lots of things. But work and family overshadow all of those things. And they usually play a role in them somehow anyway. Oh, you might also think about your faith as being another aspect of life. But really, your faith should infiltrate every area of life. Your faith should have an impact on your work and your family and everything else. So in that sense, your faith is not a separate aspect of life. It's an umbrella. It's an overarching uh, part of your life. And so this morning, we're talking primarily about work and about family. Now, here we are. My greatest lesson of 2006. I promised you that I would tell you what it is, and we finally reached that point. Here it is. When it comes to the different aspects of life, with work and family in particular... My greatest lesson of 2006 is I choose where I cheat. You get that? I choose where I cheat. Now that's an interesting word, the word cheat. We usually use that word in some kind of a negative setting. It usually has some kind of a negative connotation to it. I mean, you cheat at school, you cheat on your spouse, you cheat on your taxes, you cheat in a game, and all of that's pretty negative. But what is cheating anyway? When you cheat, what are you doing? You're giving up one thing in the hope of gaining something better. 
That's what you're doing. So you give up your integrity to get a better mark. Or you give up your faithfulness for a few moments of pleasure. Or you give up your honesty for a few extra dollars. In those ways, cheating's a bad thing, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, we were just talking about hockey, so let's talk about hockey again. If you're a goalie and an opponent has to puck over to one side of the net and there's another opponent over on the other side of the net, what are you going to do? I mean, you might want to guard against the side where the, the player with the puck is. You definitely need to do that. But you're also aware of the player on the other side. So you might cheat a little bit toward that other player who doesn't have the puck yet so you can be there in case there's a pass and you can stop a one-timer from going in the net. I mean, you give up a bit of the angle to the player with the puck so you can guard against the other player. That kind of cheating can be a good thing. So this morning, we're talking about cheating in a positive sense. Giving up one thing in favor of something better. Okay? And the truth is, we all cheat. We've all sacrificed in some ways in order to gain in other ways. Andy Stanley talked about this at the Leadership Summit. And he's actually written a book called Choosing to Cheat. And in that book, he says this. He says, the issue is never, am I cheating? The issue is always, where am I cheating? Or where am I choosing to cheat? Because we all cheat, the only question is where. So I've got these different aspects of my life. All of them are important. All of them make demands on me. All of them can fill my calendar all by themselves. Work and family in particular. They make demands. They require a lot of my attention. So which one wins? When they collide, when there are demands coming at me from both sides, which one wins and which one loses? For me personally, where I struggle is working too much. I mean, I love what I do. And there's always more to do. And so that's what I do. And having a home office doesn't help me. Uh, so it, it's difficult for me to separate work from family. And the problem is compounded because I don't really have a punch-the-clock type of job. There's always another call to make, another letter to write, another email to send, another book to read, another meeting to attend, another event to plan, another sermon to prepare, another person to visit, another song to learn, another seminar to go to, plus a myriad of other tasks. There are, there's always more. And I suspect I'm not alone here. I expect many of you have jobs where there's always more to do. And in my experience, this is where most people tend to get out of balance. They cheat their families in favor of work. Andy Stanley explains this tendency this way. He says, because of our proclivity to veer in the direction of things that stroke our egos, we tend to cheat at home. We give an inordinate amount of our time, energy, and passion to our work. That's what Andy Stanley wrote in his book, Choosing to Cheat. He writes that it's a choice that we make. And it really is a choice. We choose to cheat our families in favor of work. So when that's happening, what's going on at home? When you're cheating your family in favor of work, what's happening on the home front? Well, I'll try to picture it this way. Imagine I invited you up to the front here right now, and I had a 30-pound bag of potatoes. And I explained to you, you're just going to have to trust me, this is important, take this bag and hold it. And I had you stand over here on the side of the stage, and I just asked you to hold it. Stand there and hold it while I continue to talk. I'm going to get to something here that's going to be very important. It's going to be critical. I'm going to be there to help you hold it. But I have something else I need to do first. I'll be there in a minute. And I just had you stand here and hold it. 
And imagine I kept promising you that I was going to be, I'm going to get to it in a minute. I'll be right there. But you just hold it for now. I've got something else that needs to be taken care of first. And you're okay with that for the first minute or two. But time passes. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, a half an hour, any more than that, and what's going to happen? Well, you're liable to drop the potatoes. It's not that you don't want to hold them any longer. It's not that you don't trust me. It's not that you don't want to do what I've asked you to do. You just physically cannot hold those indefinitely. You reach the point where you, your arms will just not hold that bag of potatoes any longer. And when we cheat our family in favor of work, that's exactly what we're doing. We're leaving someone else holding the bag. We're telling them that something else is more important for us right now. We're telling our spouse at home, taking care of the kids, keeping the house in order, doing everything that's required at home. We're telling them, I, I'm, I've got my work that I need to do right now. You hold the bag. And they want to help us. They trust us. They know that what we're doing is important. They want to please us. And so they agree to it. But they reach a point eventually where they just can't do it any longer. It's not that they don't trust us. It's not that they want to hurt us. It's that they just can't do it any longer. And they reach the point where they just have to drop it. Before long, they get weary, they get resentful, and they just can't do it any longer. And when they get to that point, when you get to that point in your relationship with your spouse, what's going on? You're headed for a disaster. In fact, you've been heading there for a while. Now, I know you might feel indispensable at work, but you also know that you can always find time when an emergency arises. You'll drop everything when someone you love is rushed to the hospital. You'll take a leave of absence to tend to an ailing parent. If you discover that your spouse has an alcohol problem or your teenager has a drug addiction, you'll make whatever sacrifices are necessary to support them and get them help, right? But why should it take an emergency for that to happen? What does the Bible have to say about all this anyway? Well, what really stuck at me at the leadership summit was when Andy Stanley reminded me that Jesus himself says that he will build his church. And he reminded me that Paul wrote that I'm to love my wife. Jesus will build his church. I'm to love my wife. And as a pastor, that was particularly relevant for me because I'd gotten that out of whack. I'd been cheating the wrong way. And so I've been spending the past few months trying to get that back in balance. Let me show you some other verses. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, it says, Work hard and cheerfully at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. So yes, work really is important. We should work hard. In fact, consider this. God gave Adam work to do, even before the fall. Even before sin entered creation, there was work. Now, we tend to think of work as a necessary evil, as a result of sin. But work is not a result of the fall. Work was part of God's plan from the very beginning. So yes, work is important, and we should work hard. God values a good work ethic. He expects us to put a full day's work in for a full day's pay. But he also teaches us in his word that work is not the be-all and end-all. It's not where we're going to find satisfaction. In the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 2, verse 20, it says, So I turned in despair from hard work. It was not the answer to my search for satisfaction in this life. 
So yes, being career-minded is good, but being career-centered is not so good. It's not where you're going to find satisfaction. Our work should not be our identity. So how about family? What does the Bible say about family? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, it says, Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, this verse is actually talking about sex within a marriage relationship. But I don't think it would be a misuse of that verse to apply it to the entire relationship. Because we can deprive each other in so many ways. Yes, we can deprive our spouse sexually, but we can also deprive each other of our time, of our attention, our affections, our love. And God says it's not good to deprive each other in any of these ways, especially over a long period of time. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verses 25 and in verse 33, it says, For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. And it goes on and says, So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. But maybe you say, of course I love my family. They know that. They understand the demands of my schedule. They know I love them. They just know that I have work that's important too. Well, can I suggest to you this morning that what they know is not nearly as important as what they feel? Andy Stanley wrote, the problem is you love your family in your heart, but you don't love them in your schedule, and they can't see your heart. And neglect does not communicate love or respect. Andy Stanley also said cheating at home is translated as rejection. So what does all of this mean? How do you choose to cheat? What is the right balance? Well, we're going to talk a bit more about this next week. We'll talk about the how then. But today, we're talking about the what. And the what is that we choose where we cheat. So answer this question. Who feels cheated? In other words, who's left holding the bag? Who are you neglecting? Now, I know that life's complicated. We all have stuff to do. There are a lot of demands on your time, just like there are on my time. And I'm not saying that this will be easy. I'm not saying that I have all the answers either, because I don't. But let me ask you this. Those of you who are married, did you have your wedding day planned out completely before you even got engaged? Did you have the date set, the church booked, the hall decorated? Did you have your invitations printed and your vacation time booked? Did you have everything planned out and arranged beforehand, even before you were engaged? Or did you go through a process of figuring it out after you got engaged? I suspect you had a lot to do after the question was popped. I know we did. We didn't know when we were going to get married, or what our wedding party would wear, or, or who would be invited, or how we'd paid, we'd paid for it all. We had to work all of that out over time, after we got engaged. We decided that we wanted to get married, and then we figured out how to do it. And so I'm asking you this morning, who feels cheated? Are there changes that need to be made? You may not know how it will all work out, and that's fine. You can figure that out as you go. But do you recognize a need to change? Can you see that your life can be so much more balanced, so much happier, 
filled with so much less tension, with no one feeling neglected or cheated. Can you imagine when your spouse is fully supportive of you because you're fully supportive of them? Can you imagine when your kids know that you value them? Can you see the day when you don't feel guilty because you're neglecting your family or your work or your God? Can you see that day? I hope so, because that's what we're going to talk about next week.